welcome to episode four of Conversations with Colour. This episode is with the lovely Tanya Mawaha. Tanya is a youth activist and due to her own struggles with mental health, in March 2021, founded a youth mental health charity called Championing Youth Minds. The aim was for young people to help other young people care for their mental well-being daily. Since then, she's won multiple awards, spoken at 10 Downing Street, and this past summer launched Baton of Hope, which was the biggest suicide prevention and awareness initiative the UK has ever seen. It spanned 12 cities in 12 days. Tanya and I discuss her mental health journey, why she created her charity, and more about how people can get involved and support. Trigger warnings for this episode include discussions of suicide, domestic abuse, and self-harm. Hi, Tanya, and thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, I know a little bit about your journey from the few times that we've actually spoken, but it's been really nice to spend the day with you, by the way, today. Um, I know that you set up a youth-led non-profit organisation championing youth minds. You've been to Downing Street. Was that really super exciting? <laughs> um, and I know that you're currently working on the Battens of Hope. Um, I guess I really want to kick off with like what was the catalyst for all of that. I know that you've had quite the journey. Um, And I guess I've been really inspired by everything that you've done. So it's always good to hear more. But yeah, what sort of kicked everything off for you and what you're doing now? Yeah, I mean, thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, where to start? I think apologies in advance if I jump around a little bit with the (laughs) timeline. Um, But yeah, I think it all started pretty much since I was a child. So kind of growing up, I always had experiences where I mean, I always used to think I was really sensitive. That's what I was told as well. I was told that I was just like, I guess like a snowflake. Um, it, it To put it in kind of better terms. <laughs> Definitely felt like that should be a better term, but I hear you. <laughs> um, and yeah, and that's just kind of how I always perceived myself. And that's how those around me always perceived me as well. So I thought it was a me problem. Um, and then when I was around 12, 13 years old, we went through this series of bereavement on my dad's side of the family. So this was back home in India and kind of my dad was back and forth. It was kind of like each year, each kind of every few months or something like that. Um, So, I mean, my parents have their own experiences, which mean that, you know, grief is something that they struggle with. They've had a lot of grief in their life when it comes to losing loved ones. Um, And I think for us, so I have an older sister and a younger brother. We just kind of got used to it, but you never get used to it at the same time. It's a strange, strange concept. Um, And that's the first time where I really was struggling with my mental health. And I think all of those things that I'd experienced growing up were, I guess, had accumulated. Um, And for me, that manifested into physical symptoms. So I started to have chronic pain and chronic fatigue. And it started with like, you know, my knees, some joints, and then progressively from that age up until, I guess, today, I've lived with constant pain. Um, So it's something that like, is not treatable um it took me seven years to get diagnosed so I got diagnosed when I was 19 oh wow so that's very recent that's only like two and a half years ago yeah (laughs) oh wow yeah seven years is a long time um did you have like I guess the bereavements they would have affected you as well on your dad's side knowing all that family and stuff yeah was it really hard I guess because did you get to say your goodbyes or was that like that kind of part of not having your dad there either um or was it just like a big mix 
Yeah, I think it was a mix. Like two of them were very untimely. They were very young. Um, so it was never expected. It was just so one of them was my dad's younger brother, so my uncle, and then one of them was my cousin. So it was very unexpected, very much like, you know, you've grown up with these these individuals. You would you imagine them at your wedding, like all of these like th- <laughs> yeah. big things, you imagine them there. And it, yeah, I think it's one of those things just still hard to compre- comprehend now, even today. It's like a weird concept, isn't it? That you know someone and then one day they're just not there. Um, and then obviously with, uh, I mean, we've always had quite a small extended family, which is strange for, for an Indian family. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> um, so we've always had a small extended family. So I think that also played a part in why it was so significant. And it, it's weird, like I've never been to a funeral despite having lost so many people. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and I think that's that's also because that was all back home in India and there was no that separation yeah and yeah. and it's 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 weird isn't it because you know it's happened the last time you saw that person was when you were in india um but and then the next time you go they're not there but you you've not been to a funeral you've not had that kind of closure in a mm. sense you just yeah like i said you just wake up one day and they're not there um so it's strange and i know that my dad had had a lot to deal with in terms of being the person who needs to go there and arrange for funeral and everything like that oh wow yeah that's Um, a lot so yeah exactly a lot (laughs) yeah wow and also I think at such a young age I lost my grandma when I was 11 and actually I think it's it's a really weird thing I um didn't think I really registered it at the time but later my granddad passed away when I was 21 so 10 years later and I felt really abandoned by my granddad, which is a really weird thing to say, because obviously I don't think, you know, people technically choose to die. In, but I was like, well, who else is going to be there for me? No one else has got my back. Like yeah. he was like, a you know, an extended parent. And I think that sometimes, especially when there can be that distance and you don't have that closure, like you have to find ways for it yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, my aunt she passed away it all it's coming up to two years ago and I wasn't in contact with my immediate family at the time and so it's um it was my mum's sister and so I never got to say goodbye I asked to go to the funeral and I was told no um and that was so upsetting um that I couldn't do that so we ended up trying to do a little ceremony here Mm -hmm. um for her and you know it definitely wasn't Indian it was more about I think who she was as a person like we made I think six cakes that day she loved baking um and I just tried to make it very um centric around who she was so but I only know that because I'm older Mm -hmm. whereas when you're younger you're following other people's guidance and that's really tough to then not have have the closure is that something that you feel like you've been able to get since or not really yeah I think I've decided to find it myself and I think it's 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 interesting isn't it because I guess from others perspective they might say actually it's better if you didn't have to go through being there at a funeral and all of those things which I think in a way I am grateful for because that would have been really tough at the time but it's strange isn't it you have to kind of put the pieces together of like acknowledging that you didn't get to say your goodbyes. Last time you saw that person, you thought you were going to see them, I don't know, a year later um, or a few months later. And then you're not 
Um, and I just think it's, yeah, I think now that you've asked me if I feel like I've got that closure, I think partially, but I think there's still more that can be done to kind of get to grips with it. Cause it's such a strange concept. It's almost feels like a dream in a way. Like, you know, this person, but because they're not, their physical presence doesn't exist anymore. It's almost as if like, were they even ever there? Yes. That is exactly sometimes how I feel. So mm-hmm. I get that on every level. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I'm sorry. That's really tough. And I also think it's a really good thing that understanding of where you're at now mm-hmm. um, with the closure and, and then you can kind of hopefully, you know, work through it. And Yeah. Yeah. But I think that kind of kickstarted a lot of the self-awareness when it came to like mental health struggles. Um, and then obviously being undiagnosed for like seven years without any I mean like I, <laughs> I can go on for ages about all the things that I was told I went to, so my, my parents are really supportive they never once told me that they didn't believe me because oh, obviously pain so is good yeah like pain is something that no one can see right mm. um so it's I mean when it's non-visible everyone wants evidence everyone wants to see it it's not like having a broken arm where there's literally something wrong um so they were always just like taking me to the doctors and stuff and it it went through kind of like so many different specialists and so many different excuses as to what's wrong you growing pain stress uh, hormones (laughs) doing it for attention and all of these things wow like doctors actually said that to you yeah I think not not maybe like that explicitly but you know like when you're at an age where you're at school you know like is it something that is kind of in your head type of thing and I mean I think one thing which kind of really has stuck with me both my parents went with me to the musculoskeletal specialist I think I was in like lower sixth form um and waited ages for this appointment and I genuinely thought this guy was going to change my life like, <laughs> he was like, he's gonna be the one to to give me answers um and then we waited ages for the appointment and then yeah and we went in and um he just asked me like you know what are you doing I was like I'm in my first year of A-levels doing A-levels and he was like so they're stressful and I was like well you know everything's kind of stressful in life isn't it like obviously it's stressful um <laughs> and he just like made me st- stand up touched my shoulders a little bit and he's like oh your shoulders are really tense like and he basically put it down to a-level stress um and wow. there's just been so many moments like that where you I've just been dismissed mm-hmm. um and I think obviously dealing with that but then also dealing with the fact that you're like what like in your early teenage years no one knows what's wrong with you but you can you know something's wrong like you're literally in pain yeah. um and you know like not being able to do pee with your friends like awkwardly sitting on that bench in your school uniform (laughs) it's like it's an experience I never want to relive but I feel like that's really interesting we're so different sometimes um whilst we're so similar yeah I used to wear high heels to get out of doing pee like I was just so not a sporty person so I used to come in and still (laughs) allowed that (laughs) um to an extent my school is very um I don't know but I ended up running you know you have to do cross country uh-huh, yeah. and I ended up doing it barefoot around the field they were like wow. you will do the equivalent of cross country barefoot around the field and I was like no <laughs> <laughs> I think I actually had a full-on tantrum but that's interesting but you know not being able to play with my friends or like mm go out I think that those would have been the things that I think I would have struggled with Mm. um 
but now we've understood that I'm not a sporty person, so that's okay. <laughs> Nor am I. So it wasn't. I wasn't sad about not doing the sport. In a way, I was happy. It was more just like I think, especially because school is such a strange environment um, where you're extremely self-conscious and everything around you is, you know, makes an impact onto how you're feeling and what you're thinking. Um, I was just, yeah, always wondering, you know, what what do people think? But then also like it's a weird balance between should I be doing it even though you know should I just mask and and keep on going and um yeah and then so during that time I obviously struggled with my mental health I had like CBT I had therapy I was on antidepressants for some time um and I attempted suicide during that time as well I think my first attempt was when I was 13 which at the time no one knew about um and I didn't know it was an attempt I didn't I I I I self-harmed for so many years I didn't know it was self-harm Okay. Um, And then now when I look back at it, it all kind of makes sense. But yeah, and then when I was in university, I got diagnosed in my second year. Um, And I I genuinely thought a diagnosis was going to change my life. (laughs) You can tell I was in a lot of misconceptions. (laughs) (laughs) We learn. (laughs) Yeah, you live and you learn. But I I I just thought that having... I I knew why. So I have fibromyalgia and I have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Fibromyalgia is chronic pain. Mm -hmm. um, And... Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is a connective tissue disorder um so on a day-to-day basis manifests in pain and fatigue and all these other kind of conditions come with it and symptoms come with it um but I had been researching for years before then I for at least two years I was certain that I had fibromyalgia because I was like you've done all the tests you've done all the scans like I know that this is probably what I have I just need a medical validation so I can get a diagnosis and I know in in today's society, a diagnosis, well, a medical diagnosis helps you get accommodations and things like that. Oh, wow. Um, So, yeah, I I knew I had it. I was just waiting for someone to officially tell me that. Um, So so I thought that once I have that kind of label, it will help me. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I just remember like crashing after that diagnosis because I was like, I thought my life was going to change and it hasn't. um which also really impacted my mental health and then you know lockdown hit and all of those things and I think it was just an accumulation of things um and I think sometimes well I'm a believer of like you are given challenges to learn from them and also put you on the path of your purpose Mm -hmm. um and you don't know that at the time and you might not even know that moving forward but you just have to in hindsight it's just something I believe yeah um and yeah I just I found myself at a position where I was like I'm either going to keep going downhill until I'm not here anymore or I have the option to try to see if there's something positive I can make out of this. Mm. Um, and I think it, it started with a, a blog, like, like a written blog about the disability side of things. And obviously naturally that linked to mental health and my experiences with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was like, okay, this isn't as scary as I thought it was going to be. You know, mm. people are saying nice things. No one's like saying horrible things. <laughs> um, and I, I remember like, I, I just did like a few blog posts. I think I did one on like the difference between fatigue and tiredness. Um, and this girl that was in was in the same accommodation hall as me, she was in my year at university. She messaged me and she was like, oh, thank you so much for putting that post out. She was like, I thought I was tired for like the last few months. But after reading that, I realized it might be fatigue. And she said, I went to the doctors and they told me I'm anemic and they put me on iron tablets. Oh, wow. And I was like, wow. I was like, that was the first time I saw like a 
direct a direct like, impact yeah. and I was like that's so amazing I was like that that's been able to yeah like happen yeah yeah and then that just kind of like I guess spiraled into more that's amazing I remember so I did an article or I helped support an article in um women's health and the lady got back to me and said you know they had an outpouring of people who had gone through something similar and like just the resonation um was so helpful for me to like be more open about my experiences Mm -hmm. and then and I know we talked about this earlier but at the National Diversity Awards the other one was when you were like are you really just standing and I was like oh my god (laughs) and like the entire way home Adam was like you're famous and it was just really cute but like just sort of hearing that like someone listened to me and like took something took something away from that was really nice so um yeah you gave me an ego boost so thank you (laughs) love it um so I wanted to talk to you because I was a bit nosy Downing Street (laughs) how did that happen yeah no so um at so obviously I've been very vocal on LinkedIn LinkedIn has Mm. kind of been so after the blog and after setting up Championing Youth Minds LinkedIn has been the, the medium through which I've been able to talk about things that matter to me and share lived experience um and that's been really powerful I'm really grateful for kind of the response and the community I've been able to build on there um and you know networking everyone loves networking (laughs) (laughs) and I came across at the time um the prime minister's advisor her name is Chloe and um yeah she just I immediately when I saw the, the work that she was doing you know in her position being able to provide a platform to talk about mental health and to talk about causes that really mattered to her I just immediately kind of resonated with this person and I was like oh yeah I definitely want to connect with her um and then it was I think it was like August last year she reached out and she was like hey would you like to come to like 10 Downing Street to talk about kind of like the work you're doing and I was like I mean who <laughs> wouldn't say yes um so it kind of just like happened but I mean I I'm still in contact with her. She's my mentor. Oh, um, I love that. And I genuinely think it, it, for me, obviously being at 10 Downing Street was incredible, but to be able to, to meet someone who is such an amazing mentor and it almost like, you know, people get put on your path for a reason. I, I mm. genuinely believe that. I believe the same with you as well. Um, and yeah, and it's just turned into such a great, great relationship. And even though she's, you know doing something new this time and even though our initial meeting space was 10 Downing Street which is quite (laughs) cool um yeah I think it's just like when people believe in you and want to give you space on their platform Mm. to share your story and to talk about the things that you care about um it's obviously really powerful and empowering but also it's really special um so yeah that that was that experience (laughs) this episode is supported by Unheard The company that means music marketing has never been easier. Over 65,000 artists from 129 countries have used Unheard to run powerful marketing campaigns. Unheard provides a data-led marketing platform that helps artists reach their most valuable fans in just a few clicks. Check them out today. (laughs) That's so good to know. I love that you've found mentors through that as well, through all your networking. Um, I've definitely found it hard sometimes being an Indian woman who finds mentors I think that I've definitely found mentors in more sort of African and Caribbean spaces than Mm -hmm. I have in necessarily like Indian spaces and I think that um yeah it's sometimes just funny how that works out of like who's going to be your mentor and who 
comes across and I think that I found a couple of people and I definitely think like oh wow I am on such a completely different route to the where I thought I was going to be um and I know I said this to you earlier but 27 was my favorite year of age and um I weirdly my like Adam met this guy called Julian and um he's going to be having an episode as well and um we were talking about what he was doing and he was doing this thing called made you look and it was about these black um chefs african caribbean and how they were bringing food to represent and open the minds for people for culture Mm -hmm. and um it was a whole exhibition you should check like check it out online and um he was like oh can i have some pr support and in my spare time i ended up supporting him and that is genuinely what kicked off my diversity and inclusion journey of like I'd always had like an interest, but I just didn't really have a starting point. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of it. So it was, it is interesting. Like he kicked off a whole world for me. Um, and I've kind of just continued going with it as um, as much as I can, really. Yeah, that's quite cool. I think, I don't know about you, but I've always been in rooms and situations where I haven't felt seen or heard. Mm. Um, but yeah. then you'll come across amazing people and they will make you feel seen and heard. And I think that's the difference, isn't it? Like that's what, yeah. that's when you know that's a special connection with someone because they've made you feel the exact opposite of what you've pretty much been feeling most of your life. Yeah, I hear you. Um, yeah. I know we've touched upon being South Asian together, um, parenthood especially. <laughs> I say parenthood like we're in parenthood, I mean having parents. Um, but yeah, I know that we talked about your sort of upbringing and I am still in admiration of your mum when I met her of just being so supportive um I do think there's like such a stigma <laughs> for our community there's um there's a book I've been reading and it's called brown girl like me mm-hmm. and um definite recommendation for a reading session but it talks about like again the mental health stigma that we have of like as immigrants we just sort of need to rub brush it off like we have the race issue to deal with we've got you know money there's financial we don't have the generational wealth that other people do and there's a lot there but just seeing your mum's support (laughs) was so beautiful um and incredible like was that a journey how did that happen my mum I told her I was starting a podcast and she was like oh this is great news and I said yeah you know I'm not gonna be like too overwhelmed with like what success looks like and mm-hmm. when she was like oh I'm sure you, like you'll need to get a million followers at least and I was like oh like <laughs> oh gosh you know when you're like <laughs> you're like oh the expectation level like I've decided a different career path that's out of the conventional you know doctor yeah. lawyer and um now she's like oh aspirations must be sky high just a million <laughs> just just you know just a few people I was like oh, okay great but I feel like your your mom seemed pretty reasonable <laughs> <laughs> yeah. comparatively yeah I mean I'm really grateful for it and I think when I heard your feedback from the fact that you met me and my mom at the National Diversity Awards I was like I think sometimes I take it for granted of the fact that I mean I pretty much I think since I started doing any public speaking or going to events after I started this work, I've always brought a parent along with me. Mostly it's my mum. And I think it's because my mum probably feels more comfortable in those settings and she is more proactively taking an interest in it. But I think with both of my parents, I'm just really lucky that they've always been 
they've always given me the choice and the autonomy to do things and I think obviously as like being South Asian it comes with some unconscious biases some unconscious expectations but they've never kind of um explicitly put them on me Mm. it's more been things that I've either held myself up to or assumed that that's what they want and assumed that that's what's going to make them proud um and obviously there have been you know it would be nice if you were a lawyer or something (laughs) I'm, I'm not saying that that didn't happen um but I think yeah I'm really lucky that that has been the case and I think for both my parents it's been a journey you know I I guess I kind of put them in a situation where they had no other choice but to engage in this conversation. (laughs) Excellent. Um, (laughs) But I think for me, that makes it even more special because they didn't have a choice to to kind of, I guess, be a part of this world Mm -hmm. that I'm a part of now. But they've embraced it wholeheartedly. And, you know, like I I think I was saying to you earlier, they always ask me, you know, like, where are you going? Who are you meeting? Not because they need to know, but it's because they're genuinely interested um and they you know when I say like oh I've done a podcast or I've done this they're like yeah send us a link like put in the group chat like we want to see it and things like that and then, you know sometimes they don't really sometimes understand like certain things but they will keep asking those questions until they can understand it to a level that they're happy with um and obviously they have their own lived experience you know struggling with their mental health which they probably don't necessarily recognize or maybe label as a mental health challenge but we all know that that's you know that's part and parcel of life and there's been certain things that's happened in their life that would have made them you know struggle Mm. um but yet for them to be open-minded to it and I guess it's kind of like you're walking on a journey with your parents which is really nice and it's something that I'm sure a lot of other people don't get to do that's really beautifully put and that's so I got in touch with my mum well I say me she reached out to me and we started talking and We've had our year anniversary of being back in each other's lives mm-hmm. and um, it definitely feels like we're walking through like a journey together of like trying to understand each other and healthy boundaries and what that looks like and I think it's really good. I guess I don't, we had like um, a split where I didn't speak to her for like four years-ish mm-hmm. and um, I don't know whether we would have got there gradually like organically on our own but it's really nice to hear that like you have and um I guess you know it's really good that you sort of created a space where you're like no we are going to talk about this Mm -hmm. um I guess my question to you is like how hard was that and then in terms of because I know that you sort of mentioned earlier and if you don't want to talk about it Mm -hmm. you do not have to um that you didn't really recognize how much your self-harm meant that you had a suicide attempt Mm -hmm. was that or is there a space where you can talk about that with them and like like how challenging was that for you yeah I mean honestly they're obviously been like screaming and shouting and crying and all of those things before we could (laughs) as typical (laughs) parents yes (laughs) like before we could even get to a point where we sat down and and had a conversation but I guess today like I'm actually thinking about that journey I've never really like properly sat down and spoken about it in a way that would help me reflect but I mean when I'm talking like early teens like obviously there was the whole oh you're moody all the time like type of thing like (laughs) (laughs) um and you know like at that time I bottled up a lot of anger my way of showing it was anger Mm. um and obviously it wasn't that I was angry at them I was angry about what I was feeling and what I was thinking but um you know I did I couldn't say I couldn't put it into words but 
one thing I think I'm really lucky for is the fact that my mum she's relentless <laughs> as annoying as I thought it was at the time her asking me over and over again do you know they say like oh when, when we talk about mental health they say like oh don't just say are you okay ask again yeah my mum is the definition of <laughs> asking again and again and again and again <laughs> and she would always say it's my motherly instinct like I just know something's up and at the time I was like oh, don't get it like <laughs> please leave me alone type of thing <laughs> But I genuinely, I mean it when I say I probably wouldn't be alive today if she didn't do that. Because it was her asking me over and over again. It was, you know, when I've probably said really harsh things that when I'm angry or cried or shouted or whatever, her still coming upstairs and being like, give me a hug. Like, are you okay? Like, you can talk to me about whatever you want at any point of time. And she'd be sometimes be like, you have to talk to your dad about it. You can talk to me about it. Um, And as I'm really grateful for that because I think yes she probably you know had to deal with things that she didn't want to deal with or hear um but that's kind of what allowed me to have that safe space to open up Mm. Um, and I think the the hardest thing is the first time you have a conversation where you make yourself vulnerable and you're like actually I'm not okay actually I am struggling or I'm thinking about this and I think especially when when you're talking about things like suicide it's hard to tell someone and that's how you're feeling especially when someone who loves you and it's a parent because no parent would want to hear that their child is is thinking or feeling that way um and I know it's been tough for them as well like they've obviously had an emotional journey with it all um I told you like my my dad's father took his own life when my dad was 16 so my dad almost in a way probably had to relive a lot of those thoughts and feelings again when it came to to me um but they've always made that safe space and the door's always been open is the way I would describe it um door was always open since we were children but for me to acknowledge that the door was open was a journey for me to go down to understand that you know when they say you can talk to me about it they actually mean it they're not going to shout at me like Mm -hmm. and there have been times that they probably got frustrated (laughs) and they'll be like oh why can't Yeah. yeah but that's just natural but I think yeah we've all we we've grown so much and I think as a family it's brought us closer together like I would genuinely say my parents are my best friends now um tell them every little thing (laughs) (laughs) I love that um but yeah I guess it's just like you have to break down a lot of those walls that we put up for ourselves Mm. and be open to learning and growing to allow for that to happen that's so interesting I think um so I sort of separated from my family, like, gosh, maybe 2018 time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember feeling quite suicidal then. And it's weird because for me, I never genuinely felt like that door was ever open for me in terms mm-hmm. of a family thing. And I don't know whether I put it down to them being South Asian or like the culture of that and what that means or they just didn't understand I do sometimes think that generational gap is Mm -hmm. like very real of like stiff off a lip you just kind of get on with it you just don't think about it and you move on but Adam for me has always been an anchor in my life um Mm -hmm. and I think that it was really weird because I I remember I'd planned it all out Mm. and I was going to do it the specific day and it was summertime and my friend James, I don't think he'll mind if I mention his name. He, I don't think he even realised what he was doing. And I think yeah. he was having a bad day, maybe. <laughs> and he was like, do you want to go for a walk? Uh-huh. And like, at the time, we were in such 
an intense working environment that going for a walk genuinely felt like I'm losing time Mm. if I do not use this time to work and I have to go for a walk with you I don't like I don't know mentally what the repercussions would have been that was a terrifying thought and so I was like he was like I need to go for a walk we're going for a walk like it was no longer my decision Mm -hmm. and getting out for a walk and he was just ranting about honestly I couldn't tell you what now and we'd gone for this walk and he'd chosen to go because we live we worked in Borough Market actually so which Mm -hmm. was great area and we went towards the river way and we were just like looking at the Thames and ranting away and then he was like oh I'm really glad that you were listening and honestly I've never told him this but I wasn't listening Mm. and instead I was just thinking like oh he appreciates me being here and it was that small thing that was like okay all my plans have changed today because of that small appreciation and I think that yeah I think the the first time that I attempted like Adam was here and I think that was really upsetting for him obviously and then I think we then had to really open the doors of like what does that look like how do we recognize that pattern that Mm. I'm going towards to get there and I think for me he is my anchor and my safe space and what your parents are and I'm very grateful that he he is there um but also I'm sometimes really aware of how much emotional baggage <laughs> that might be for the poor boy. Um, but no, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And sometimes I think that in my head, it's still very low level. Yeah. Um, of like, well, no, that is an option mm-hmm. in my head. Like I just haven't f- like, I say cross the line. I've crossed it, but maybe not, you know, fully. Yeah. Um, so I think that having certain people in your life and just sharing different levels of appreciation I think really does go a long way yeah and I think it's also like you are never going to be able to not you can't necessarily prevent yourself from feeling or thinking the same way ever again Mm. um and that's something that like I say to my parents openly I'm like yeah sometimes I do feel like that and they're obviously like no no don't don't feel like that don't think like that like don't do anything and I get it but it's also like that's the reality of it is that some people genuinely live with this on a daily basis Mm. um and you know that's why small things like showing appreciation or having conversations or just holding a space can make such a big difference because you genuinely don't know like I'm sure your friend didn't know what was going through your mind at that point of time so it's like no one knows um I guess everyone's just trying to do the best that they can. Yeah. Um, but being on the receiving end, like some things can genuinely just mean so much. Yeah. And I think, um, cause I was, um, obviously researching you pre-podcast. <laughs> um, but I was looking at your website and, um, I know that we had chatted about Battens of Hope. Mm-hmm. And I think those are the thing, the bigger things and pillars that I think will help people yeah um and I think that having access points I love that you have a whole section of like here's who to contact if you're feeling xyz and here are the options and like again like the differences between and nuances between like feeling a certain way and feeling this way like what can it lead to and I think Mm. that opening conversations about things that we hadn't really thought through I think is really important nowadays like am I feeling depressed because of like what's the reason because of that and where does it stem from or like you know I know I joked about it earlier but is it because I'm on the pill like yeah sometimes it's really hard to work out where 
the origin is, but sometimes just dealing with it mm-hmm. at s- surface value is enough to just steer you away. Yeah. And I think the important thing for me, well, the thing that matters most to me is that I don't think there's these conversations going on in society and it's really great, but there's mm-hmm. not the level of representation that we need. Like there is not enough South Asian representation, not enough mm. South Asian female representation, disability representation, you know, young people representation. I guess it's just, you know, everyone is so unique. We all have different intersecting identities and it's just about making sure that there's that representation. And I, I even with Baton of Hope, I always say that, you know, as, as a South Asian, our experiences are very different to maybe what some people initially expect, like the influence of religion and, and culture and tradition. Like that's something that I've had to, to battle and, you know, Nazar is so evil eye and, you know, all of these things. And it's like, these things need to be spoken about and there needs to be a platform for these conversations to happen because not everything's going to resonate with everyone. Mm. Um, but it can't just be a one size fits all approach to to talking about these things. Um, and I think in making myself vulnerable, I'm hoping that it's able to kind of bridge that gap. But yeah, kind of trying to take one for the team. I, <laughs> I definitely think that you've definitely <laughs> taken one for the team. I think, um, you know, we walked away from the National Diversity Awards and I, I told you at the time, it was a very inspiring place to be. Mm-hmm. But emotionally, it was quite tumultuous in the fact that you just, I just felt everybody's, Mm -hmm. whilst these amazing things are happening, it does all stem from trauma. And everybody in their speech has talked about, insert traumatic experience here, what I learned from it, and now this is what I'm doing. And that very much felt like the formula and it was just a lot. And especially I was feeling quite suicidal at the time, which is weird because it felt like in everything that was like my most successful moment Mm, um like I you know I'd gotten a really nice lovely new job I'd passed my probation there I was earning you know a nice amount of money and I was doing other things and things were kicking off and yet I felt so low and like Adam genuinely carried the social (laughs) element of who we are together that evening and I you know, we chatted briefly and then I remember going away and then on the drive home, um, yeah, because we drove to Liverpool. (laughs) (laughs) I remember like sort of researching you and reading about you and we had this really interesting conversation about suicide and like, what does it look like for me? What does it look like for him? Like, Mm. has he ever been there? And, you know, male suicide, I don't think is necessarily spoken about. And I think that when you talk about representation, like, you know, I always talk about positive, you know, like, and in my head, there's very much like seeing disabled models or plus size models Mm. or like, you know, seeing it in vogue or having, but actually like mental health, there's still like when celebrities speak out about it, there is still like mean comments. People are horrible. And whilst I've been on a receiving end when I have posted something, that led to a court case which was wild (laughs) yeah um but some dms that i got from family members Mm. were awful yeah and told me i was lying and told me i was manipulating a situation for my own personal gain and i was like i don't really know what i'm gaining from this but okay yeah and um i just think that 
the mental health representation Mm -hmm. needs to be more considered as well like it can be dark and twisty as perceived but in that there is light and there is hope yeah and I think that that's often not shown and I definitely think that you're paving a way for that um so yeah that's where I'm at (laughs) (laughs) no thank you I mean it's it's interesting it's like when you use the example of disability representation because this is something I always talk about we see we've we're seeing better disability representation when it comes to visible disabilities Mm, but non-visible disabilities like there's been so many occasions where I've been places and I'll say to someone, yeah, like I have a disability, I'm disabled. And they'll be like, no, you're not. Like, you're not in a wheelchair. You're not, you don't have a walking stick. Like, you're fine. You don't look a certain <laughs> way, Tanya. <laughs> but it's like, that is the fact. And I think that it, it, it's correlated with mental health, isn't it? That because it's not visible, um, it almost doesn't serve. It doesn't work in the same way as ticking a box where it's visible. Um, mm. Not that everyone's ticking a box, but it, it, if you use that principle against it, it's just not easy to ensure the representation is there because you can't see it um and i think that's that that's what's interesting and and the only thing you can do in this instance is share your experience but like you said people will always have things to say you know why are you sharing it you're exaggerating it like all of these things um it's kind of like a you know you're never going to please everyone type of situation but the way i the way i think about it is even if you can positively impact at least one person then that's what matters yeah I think that's a great segue um (laughs) because I you know I know I talked about your initiatives and you've done you've done a TED talk haven't you yes yeah that was pretty exciting (laughs) love that (laughs) um but we talk about the youth mental health uh, health gap um I guess my question is you know what is the true gap Mm -hmm. of the of mental health and what does that sort of mean and I mean I know that you're doing so much to sort of provide help and a a source of information but how do you feel like we can create more change for wider society not necessarily in the pockets where people are interested yeah if that makes sense yeah I think normalizing it is the main thing like with champion youth minds we talk about taking care of your mental well-being every day and it's as simple as you know we take care of our physical health therefore we should also take care of our mental health because it's the same principle that should be applied to both And for me, where all of this really stems from was the fact that when you're at school, you literally learn nothing about mental health. Like you don't, you have like one or two, I don't know, PSHE lessons where they talk to you about drugs and and alcohol abuse. But there's, there's literally talking about talk to Frank. Do you still have talk to Frank? (laughs) I had it, but I don't know if it still happens. (laughs) Well, I think I'm a solid like 10 years older than you. (laughs) I'm glad that talk to Frank is still available. (laughs) Still there. Um, but yeah, it's like no one teaches you about it. And through my experience, and then the more I started talking to other young people, it it stems from the fact that you're having a really bad experience and then you Google it or you see it on social media in like some kind of dark humor format. <laughs> and it's like, I mean, like my brother's 16 now, but obviously I, I've been doing this work for like, as I say, like two years now. So he was like 14. And I'd always kind of like test, there's only six year age difference between us, but I'd always like test things on him. So I'd be like, you know what's your understanding of this or this and it's like literally all through social media or through you know what they've had word of mouth at school but it's never like you've had a lesson and they've taught you that everyone has mental health and stress is inevitable I remember once he was really stressed about his mock GCSE exams and he said something to me and he was like 
please can you just take all the stress away from me and at that oh. point it just dawned on me and I was like he doesn't know that stress is inevitable you can't <laughs> escape stress and it's not any fault of his it's just the fact that no one's told him that um because like at school you're taught all of these things and it's like but no one tells you that like you will have rubbish moments at times but like this is kind of your toolkit on how to how to deal with it and I think also coming out of the pandemic as well that's such a big impact I mean like I was at university during COVID and I was like it's just such a weird experience because it's like you feel almost feel like years have been robbed off of your life um and everyone tells you that like you know when you're young like these are the best years of your life and then it just gets worse from there but I know I just pulled a face I'm so sorry <laughs> I don't know I wouldn't I think there is such an emphasis on uni being the best experience and honestly mine was mediocre at best mine was the worst three years of my life honestly (laughs) I think that like whilst no one tells you about stress uh, I feel like alongside that they they should just say university is another three years studying a levels is where you'll pull your hair out just trying to get to university then it's like you know when you're learning how to ride a bike and they take off the stabilizers yeah well it's like they're taking off your stabilizers and they've hidden your helmet and you've got to go search for your helmet because that's your element of independence where mm. you to learn how to shop and budget and eat healthily and like let's be real like most of us probably lost weight and then gained it <laughs> because of the sugar and the alcohol that we were drinking <laughs> yeah. and like no one tells you like how many times you're gonna go to the doctor because you're probably gonna get freshers flu every so often your drinking habits aren't helping you Mm -hmm. and actually alcohol is a massive depressant yeah and so i'm not sure that the dressing up or the anything helped me in fact i don't think i studied that hard (laughs) i scraped a two-one being honest it's 10 years ago it's fine um but yeah I don't I just think it was it's glorified and I think it's glorified by the people who have privilege and can not have a student loan or need a student grant to pay help pay for their bills and might have mommy and daddy pay for it I don't know but Yeah. yeah I know definitely uni is is overrated and the only thing that I would say about university now my brother's in uni and we're really proud of him he's such an intelligent albeit sometimes lazy (laughs) um intelligent human being and he's a fantastic uni but if I'm being really honest I would not have suggested to go to uni and instead done something else or go straight into the workforce however your earning potential yeah is the thing that the three years pays for it is it's like I mean like I'm lucky that I went to a prestigious university and that's kind of what's gotten me through everything is just being (laughs) like oh I went here and then everyone's like oh my god you went there it's just like that's it (laughs) like nothing about like what did you study how did you do it's literally just like oh you went there like you just must be clever and you must be good okay Um, but it's like is the amount of debt that I now have to pay off for the rest of my life like worth those literally three letters <laughs> i saw this um meme on instagram where it was like this lady had tweeted something like oh when i went into university i had i realized that i was going to walk away with like 36 thousand pounds in debt mm-hmm. and now it's somehow forty-eight thousand. and i was like yeah same hun same yeah. <laughs> like whenever i look at my payslip and i'm like ah, student loan that still exists and now you have to i mean you had to declare it on your um 
mortgage and stuff like that and you mm. just don't think that this massive debt is gonna like I know anytime it says like do you do you owe a loan I'm like surely no and then I'm like wait, <laughs> wait. <laughs> it's a yes that one but yes sorry I digressed but um yeah no uni probably wasn't the end or be all but I think I mean the thing that I like now and I think was potentially forced by the pandemic is that some unis are offering free mental health services and counselling. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> interesting with university mental health services and support. I think it's just so varied between universities, which is not fair on any young person that you should have a different support. You should have support, you shouldn't have support just depending on which university you go to. Um, and I think obviously they saw a surge of demand with more young people needing mental health support and seeking support mm-hmm. um and i think they they need to catch up with the demand and and obviously standard as well there's no standardized kind of mental health um you know processes or things that they have to adhere to and that's why with the baton of hope um so i'm leading the education charter and that's exactly what we're going to be doing is you know having a standardized um framework in place for schools universities colleges all educational institutions to have a a level of kind of bare minimum support that they should be giving to students because the student suicide rate is so extremely high and you know always say like you people say university is the best three years of your life for some people it's literally the last years of their life Hmm. um and no young person should have to go through that yeah um so i think yeah that's another another topic potentially for another time <laughs> a bigger juicy one <laughs> the education system yeah no I hear you I think that's it's really interesting though yeah I didn't think about the standardization I guess you know I said to my brother like as a family the three of us have been through a lot mm. um and I just said to him like I you know me I'm, I'm a massive advocate of therapy I love therapy my therapist is great and um but access is a big issue and yeah. I just said to him like but you have free mm-hmm. counseling like why would you not take that like we've all been through a lot my mum is on a waiting list for time to talk she had a consultation period and then they said sure we'll get you in in 18 months she told them that she was quite suicidal mm. and 18 months I was like I don't like oh, yeah. like I know her and I'm able to support her and she has got a really good support system in the name of friends and her sister but not everyone has that and 18 months is not quick enough no it's not um and I you know I said to my brother please just take the counseling it's free yeah um but I didn't actually think about anything being standardized I just saw it as like here's help (laughs) go knock that door down kind of thing um but the other thing that I don't think is talked about enough is like there I think you know therapy and therapists I think are more in a I say booming business I think it always was when you think about like the Harley streets of the world but like I think more people are trying and wanting to help others and have this democratization of safe spaces and mental health but there are students that are learning to be therapists that can charge like ten pounds, mm-hmm. and their waiting lists are like a month. Yeah, and I think that those options aren't necessarily considered by people, and I think it's a lot because psychology or psychiatric houses like 
don't necessarily advertise that yeah um you've got places like minster um i personally did a course with the philadelphia association and that course changed my life Mm -hmm. um for the better i hope (laughs) um but it 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 taught me that not everyone thinks like me yeah um i'm definitely in a millennial bubble at times (laughs) and it taught me how to hold space for others i don't think i necessarily did that well before but sometimes like these courses are i say relatively inexpensive it was expensive for me to do but also it was i think it was about a thousand for the whole year um so when i compare that to a university course you know (laughs) much cheaper (laughs) cheaper um and i think that you get a lot of therapy through it and Mm -hmm. a lot of self-awareness and there are students that are like my friend actually she lives in brighton and she was like oh there are these students i pay seven pounds fifty and i do 15 50 minute sessions i have it for six weeks yeah continuously and then that's it yeah she's not allowed to go there for another six months until they've got a fresh batch of students and then she can reapply and talk to them about her next set but that's still six weeks that you wouldn't have to wait for yeah I mean it's interesting isn't it I mean like after my attempts I was back in the classroom or the lecture hall the next day and that's just the way that's just how I guess that you're just on your own and I think that's yeah something that needs to needs to change and hopefully will be changing with Baton of Hope. I hope so. <laughs> I think this is like, so I always talk about legacy and um, I think I mentioned it to you earlier, but my friend, um, they said like, when you start earning a certain amount of money, I find this fascinating, but you psychologically then start feeling like a lot less empathy for people who struggle mm-hmm. if money is an issue, which let's be honest, a lot of access to things requires money. And so majority of issues (laughs) um, I'll fall under that. So I don't mean it in like a, you're going to have a private check kind of way, but like, what is the legacy that you want to leave behind? And I think, you know, baton of hope is probably your first step into Mm -hmm. that. But what does, what does that look like for you? I think it goes back to the point of saying where I said that just to be able to support or positively impact one person is so meaningful because it kind of is your driving force to keep on going and like I said before it's not easy to make yourself vulnerable over and over again like there's been so many times I like stood on stage and you're talking about these things and then when you realize what you're talking about you're like "Uh, should I be like emotional right now and I think for me like it's yeah putting myself in that position over and over again to have a positive impact and and the thing which a lot of people don't realize is that like all the work I do is voluntary like I don't get paid for anything I do mm. um like pretty much all the talks that I do are free of charge it's because I want to do it and I want to share the experience and a lot of people are like oh but how do you balance like all of that all of those hours with like you know I know that I asked you that earlier <laughs> <laughs> the need to live but it's like when you're passionate and you're truly wanting to make a difference it just it just you just work it out like it just works out um and then in terms of a legacy I think goes back to the representation point for me is that more young people people with disabilities South Asian community we need to be able to see ourselves on a platform where we're talking about these things we need to be able to see ourselves on a national level having these conversations it shouldn't just be the same people having the same conversations we need to be a part of it and I think I've been in so many rooms where I felt invisible um, you know, during this entire process, doing the work that I do. 
and yeah it doesn't feel nice but it's like you have to break that ceiling and you Mm. have to kind of and then you can hope that by breaking that ceiling more people are able to follow um and it's it's always really rewarding like yesterday i was having a conversation with um two members from the south asian community they were father and son actually and they were another example of how great it is to have that open conversation um and it's just like yeah we are getting there you know we're moving moving together it's just about i guess yeah just trying to to do what you can Mm. and using the darkest times to to show that there's light and there's hope because i think at the time when i or people used to say to me like oh things will get better i'm like no (laughs) don't tell me that that's the last thing i need to hear right now but it is true um and it's just about yeah showing people and kind of empowering them to then be able to share their story if they want to or to at least to be able to be a part of the space because i think we've been just historically there's been too many times where we haven't been included in things Mm. and our stories aren't told um and i mean that from a young person's perspective disabled south asian female um all of those together as well so i think it's just about yeah being able to to represent that as much as possible well you're definitely well on your way to doing that (laughs) um hopefully one day you'll be on the front cover of like um vanity fair talking about it and um i guess i mean i have a hope but i think one day like i would love there to be like um you know the equivalent of like a web summit that's you know a mental health conference where we're talking about all these issues and there are solutions and it's not just you know antidepressants and tablets and medication but it's actually like here are forms of like group therapy or this kind of therapy and how can yeah. we bring that access and democratize it for people um so yeah you can uh, maybe have a kickstart on that <laughs> after batons of hope i'll take the idea <laughs> um yeah i don't know how you're gonna get funding for it but let me know <laughs> find someone somewhere we just need some rich people <laughs> um but yes well I think that probably rounds us up. Um, Thank you so much for coming. And um, I'm really grateful to have you here. And like I said, you've inspired me for sure. So um, that's one person you can uh, take off (laughs) off the list. Um, But yeah, and I'm sure we will chat again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you.